0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Experience by Design podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. I'm Gary David and in this week's episode we are lucky enough to talk to Liliana Petrova, formerly the director of customer experience at JetBlue and now founder and CEO of the Petrova Experience she also describes herself as an organizational culture evangelist. And it's an interesting expression when you consider how frequently evangelicals are referred to in this election cycle and in the political climate in the U.S. overall. In looking up what is it evangelical, simply put, it's a person who acts like an evangelist seeking to convert someone else or to bring someone into the fold. This makes me think, what does this mean in an organizational cultural context? How can you convert a whole organization of people to adopt a culture of centricity, for instance, whether it be customer centricity, employee centricity, or any centricity you want to throw in there? Are we really talking about being a cultural missionary? Trying to instill in the natives a sense of belief in a higher power overturning their traditional culture and belief system for something that is believed to be more enlightened. Obviously, the missionary and evangelical metaphor is laden with a lot of historical and contemporary baggage, so the comparison is not a clean one. But it does get us to start thinking about the job and role of the experience design professional, and especially the customer experience professional, not only to improve MPS and other metrics, but to create a higher calling of centricity and service to others, whether customers or fellow co-workers, in the course of doing the organization's work. Enter Liliana's work at JetBlue, where she was director of customer experience for almost eight years. If there's a feature of your JetBlue experience that you enjoy, odds are that Liliana had a hand in it. In describing her role, she once wrote... As customer experience director at JetBlue, I feel pride and responsibility to meet the high expectations of our customers and am passionate to keep the love alive as we grow. Now, the airline industry might seem like an odd place to plant your flag to keep the love alive, but if you are going to carry forward the gospel, you need to go to the dens of evil and there is perhaps no place as evil as the airline experience. Having traveled recently, the wounds for me are indeed fresh to consider how love for air travel is even possible at all. If you, want a, if you want a challenge to practice your controlled breathing, your mindfulness exercises, and expressions of gratitude, then book an airline ticket and try your luck with that. In my own experience recently, there was no specific instance in my trip that was particularly horrible. There was not one thing that stood out. If you want to apply the peak-end rule, there wasn't this bottom abyss of horrible experience. So I can't really point to any one thing. But overall, the specter of horribleness hung over me like a weighted blanket of a weighted despair. You're always kind of waiting for everything around you to go wrong at any instant. Looking at the monitors for delays, waiting for someone to sit next to you who might not really fully understand personal space requirements, your bag not showing up, anything at all can go wrong to throw the whole journey into chaos. And so when we travel, it's not just what's going on, but it's what we're expecting to go wrong. If anyone or anything is in need of salvation, it is the airline industry, the airline workers, and air travelers as well. While well, some part of it, some parts of it might be beyond salvation and saving, and you know what companies I'm talking about, it is the job of the missionary to try to save as many souls as possible. It is probably then not terribly surprising that in talking to Liliana, our conversation touched on her education in a Franciscan institution, her growing up in a communist society, and how that shaped her views on service, how her grandmother would talk to her about religion through using fairy tales because she couldn't teach religion in a communist society, and how customer experience is more about just trying to create better customer satisfaction, but change how an organization views its mission in life. Hope you enjoy the conversation. And I, you know, it's, it's funny to think about, I think the last time we were chatting was around the employee experience panel we were on. Yep. I think. Yep. And, and that was a lot of fun. I felt very intimidated by, you know, by that panel, because there are a lot of people like you who are very experienced, who are very, uh you know, have done a lot in industry. And then there was me, the academic. And as the academic, it's always like, I don't know, I can talk about this stuff but they've actually done it. You've done quite a lot of, you've done a lot of stuff.
1: Yeah. It's kind of funny that you, A, you didn't come across at all, um, intimidated. And B, I actually thought you were one of the people I found, um, to say things that, like you were very eloquent. Um, I know, I know it's probably from the academia, but there, there were things that you were saying. I was like, oh man, I, I will go back and listen to him because often when you do stuff like us, you are, So, so, I don't know how to explain it. So stressed about the results and and proving the case or making your leadership um, understand what you do almost um, that it is very hard to take a step back and really think about what you did. Um, So that marriage between somebody like you and somebody like me is actually great in terms of like, even if we write a book or anything, because you would be able to eloquently explain what I did while I would be just running and doing stuff. You know what I mean? And, uh, blogging is the only time in my life that I have had the luxury to step back and think about it. So it's been nice to write.
2: No, I was actually just quite curious too. Like, how did you, how did you come to blogging as kind of an output that like became in, in, was blogging a reflective practice when you first began it, or is it something that it kind of evolved that way?
1: Well, it's um, it evolved definitely. Um, but, you know, it kind of started naturally while I was looking for themes and what to mm. write about. Um, I did go back to one of my closest friends from uh, college. Actually, she was the admission counselor in my college, and um, when I started writing, I literally enrolled in her uh, pseudo made class of English one hundred one. So I, mm. I I went back to school a little bit. <laughs> uh, it was hilarious. We would meet in 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 a Starbucks basement in Brooklyn where studied <laughs> <laughs> wow. for my college exams. Um, and um and it was the basics, right? Like intro, you know, make your case. And uh she had a couple of lessons on uh the the writing of authoritative writing or like expert writing versus just telling a story. And giving, kind of combining her structure that she gave me and my ideas, she was able to uh, show me how much I have in my head. Um, I definitely needed a partner, you know what I mean? In the beginning, mm. especially to kind of understand what is a blog article and all that stuff. Uh, but it started with another um, another woman, actually, that I met through networking. And she called me one day and she said, let's do a blog. And I said, what is a blog? Um I am hmm. not afraid to admit that I actually did not know exactly what a blog is um and she was so passionate um that she got me to start writing.
0: One of the challenges of being an academic yeah. sometimes, and this is like you know for both adam and i we live we live in this in between space between academia and applied stuff is being able to translate those those larger, you know, Mike's situation sociological and Adam's anthropological, those frameworks, those concepts, those approaches, theories, and then translate them into a practice environment, right? And so it's been really interesting for us doing the podcast, talking with people like yourself, where people will tell us all the interesting stuff that we've done, then we're, you know, it sparks in our heads these theoretical perspectives or other kinds of studies that have been done and people will go, oh, I had no idea that that, that existed. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that's a thing? Yeah. And They're like, yeah, that's actually a thing. And so to bring, those, to bring the power of those things together is I think really vital. So I appreciate you mentioning that and also saying that I was very eloquent. <laughs> because that's not often said about me, that I was very eloquent.
1: <laughs> I think you're passionate about the topic. I think you're passionate about it. And that helps you probably be a little more um, eloquent than usual.
0: Well, I, you mentioned passion. I actually, I, I was looking at your bio. I was doing you know, background information, not in a weird stalker kind of way, because that would be odd. <laughs> but one of the things I want to ask you about, oddly enough, because I share this kind of background, is you... You have a Franciscan education.
1: Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. And I have
0: a, a, for your college, I went to high school at a Christian Brothers High School.
2: Oh, that's
0: so cool. Yeah. And and the reason I mention this is one of the things I appreciated about Catholic school, quote unquote, was being in a denomination that devoted their lives essentially to educating the poor. You know, for me, de-, de La Salle is named after St. John Baptiste de La Salle, who was in France educating the poor and the Franciscan education very similarly. Mm-hmm. It's this, this community mission of, of outreach that, you know, when looking at your bio, I really focused in on because I see, I think I see that as the foundational element of all your work.
1: Wow. This is so insightful. Um, I have spoken to so many people you are the first to make the connection um i you know i wonder sometimes if if they were the genesis or if they validated that um, that doing good for people is a purpose worth pursuing um it's i came the the actual genesis before that was uh communism and being in a country that, um, and being contemporary in a country that went through a very massive political transition and economic transition. um, And hearing the stories, um, my grandfather had a complicated relationship with the Communist Party. And hearing some of the stories, very early on, I realized that I was raised in that whole idea of justice, Mm-hmm. and and fairness and injustice. Um, so when I came to the Franciscan order and they made me take three philosophy classes and one religion class, which was just a cover-up for four religion classes, um, <laughs> I, uh, I was very, you know, and I came from a country that, you know, religion was forbidden. So I had a, a, a very interesting um, kind of journey because the only way I knew the Bible was because my great-grandmother illegally practiced religion in the house. And, and when I was very, very young, she was the only one to take care of me. So I know the stories of the Bible without order. So I know all the characters, all the stories, but I don't know which piece of, of the history of the Bible, which story comes. Because she would tell me the Bible in the format of fairy tales
0: interesting hmm. so, wow well, you
1: well. know i couldn't go out and say i read the bible at home um so i, I when i came to, to the catholic school and the brothers and we had and during my time it was really amazing cuz we had many of the brothers were still around they would walk the the hallways with their you know, uh, attire and they were teachers. Um, the religion classes specifically were taught by brothers. So I'm right. so critical. I would like ask all the questions and, and the whys and and I just kept going on and on and on, saying like why why is this happening? Why, like religion didn't make sense to me. And I remember my level third class, which was kind of like the final one. The professor looked at me and said, Liliana, sometimes you just have to believe. Okay, you just have to believe in it." <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was a it was an amazing experience to be frank it was really good
0: yeah I, I, there's a belief element of it right that you just have to believe but at the same time at least in my high school education the the, the religion classes taught by the christian brothers were very strong in critically examining and discussing you know the gospels or any any of the texts and we were more focused on you know studying the gospels and i think that you know in going into business education right there are things that are taken as articles of faith that you are supposed to do because that's how it's done but at the same time the customer experience or employee experience or experience design is about in many instances critically examining those taken for granted assumptions of how how we do things or how things are done and question those articles of faith as a way of leading to innovating and changing, not only, you know, a practice or a process, but the entire business culture in and of itself. Oh
1: my God. That's so well put. Well, I guess that's what I do. I did it in the classroom and I keep doing it in my job questioning, <laughs>
0: which which often makes us very annoying to be around as people. But I think you know, the benefit is that we don't take any of this stuff for granted. And it's always questioning why and, you know, pushing people to leave the safe ground. And and some might think that that might sound odd for a religious, you know, school, a religious based education, but at least that that was my experience that the Christian brothers were always very much in pushing this idea of, you know, thinking critically about how these things translate into our lives and what do they mean rather than just, you know, accept this. No, obviously there was a point where they're just like, you know what, you just got to accept this as an article of faith. But at least there was the impetus to question as, as an initial step in that journey.
1: No, I think you're right. I do remember that every time we would have a reading, then we would talk about how that relates and what does it mean to today's life. Another favorite class I think that taught me a lot, especially in New York, uh, was the pure religion class, the only official religion class. Um, it was an amazing experience for me because every class was a religion So we studied every religion uh, for one class. We had readings Mm -hmm. and and the professor would talk to us about the basics of the belief system and the genesis and the characters and what are the traditions around this so that you could um, go in New York and respect your your classmates. Because in the classroom, we had people from different religions. Right. And, that's and Adam's side of the street. Really taught me empathy and kind of like understanding that there that the people I literally commute among have completely different viewpoint of the world because of their religious background.
2: That, that that's actually so fascinating, and I love that too. I it's it's I I came to religion education later than than you both. I, I studied it in college alongside anthropology, but I I think what's what's so fascinating about this too, because you know we are thinking the other side of this conversation is, is like pointing towards, what does it mean to think about the customer experience or experience design? And it's so interesting because on one level, religion uh, has, you know, has designed elements to it. I mean, I'll, I'll just say that as nice as I can. Um, and <laughs> oh, you know, for
0: sure it does, you know, oh, absolutely.
2: And then the other side of course, is that we are, we are talking about, I love this, this, this phrasing of articles of faith, you know, because when we talk about the customer experience or what it is that we're trying to have, uh, you know in a corporate culture or a business put together for for customers or for their own employees um you know what are the articles of faith that we we kind of take for granted that the now we see sort of we we can question more so and it, it's almost like design and experience design itself has has helped open up that space that it that is kind of okay to question and realizing that when it comes to things like innovation um and making a better world, you know, maybe not necessarily a delightful experience, but like making things better, Mm uh, is, is part of this, right. That that's such a a piece of this equation. Uh, that's, it's interesting because I I love this too, because I had not prepared to come here thinking about religion, but, (laughs) um, (laughs) you know, it is such an interesting way to like, think about what are the elements of both design and things that we're supposed to take as articles of faith, uh, when it comes to experience that we actually can have a hand in, in, you know, altering for the better or changing.
1: Well, if you look at the at the tagline of of the Petrova Experience, um, I did put uh, in pursuit of customer happiness, mm. and the process of getting there was much more psychological than I thought. I actually I worked with a, a former colleague from JetBlue, and when I st- called her and we used to work together, and I said, "Are you going to help me get this brand going?" She was like, "Of course," and she said, "We have to have an interview." I was like, "Really." And the whole hour, we talked about me as a person and what, what my purpose is and what I believe in. And I quickly found myself talking exactly um, about what Gary was saying, about mm. how to make the life a better place. I want more people to have better experiences. Um, and, and I think in this process, I, I learned that my ultimate drive is also to to help. And I think customer experience, design, and questioning these things for the better um ultimately it, we all are coming from a good place you know what i mean not necessarily mm. criticizing for the sake of criticizing but because we see uh how it can be better for the future uh generations
2: i think that that's actually one of the things that i think is so powerful about design in a broad sense too is that um i really appreciate the idea of not critiquing just to critique right but it's actually critiquing that we may find aspects that can be improved right or that can be that can either help make the world a better place you know improve the experience make it a more aesthetically pleasing on the most surface level, but then in a deeper level of, of, I love this idea of of pursuit of happiness is really quite an interesting uh, perspective in that it's both psychological, but also a a state of being too, right? That, you know, some people think about happiness as something that you pursue and that you ultimately never find, or happiness is kind of being good where you are, right? And then improving that goodness in the the space that you're in uh, at present. Um, that's so cool. So, so I'd love to talk a little bit about or get the sense of like, so when you moved into kind of setting up the Petrova experience and so you, you, you picked a partner, a former partner from JetBlue, um, you know, was, how did it, like uh, you kind of mentioned that this was more of a psychological experience than you thought, like what, what about that kind of surprised you or how did, how did the psychological side of it kind of pop out?
1: Um, well, I think, um, the way the conversation was going was that a brand, um and and jet blue brand as, as well is ultimately um if done right is an expression of the values and the belief system of those who who lead it and who who make the texture of the of the company and in that sense because the petrova experience at the time was me she said it's very important that what we build reflects me mm. um she has worked with me many years so the the psychology that uh, surprised me was that um, I really um, I really didn't want to just make money. You know what I mean? Like mm. I I thought that uh, that I wanted to make money, which I think I want to. I mean, I still want to make money. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but sure. a lot in my professional development classes and uh, career coaches conversations, uh, a lot of times and often it came that I'm very Giving and that I, I, I should have worked for nonprofits, and that I mm. haven't, um, I haven't been in sync with with my with the core of who I am, uh, because I ultimately ended up in a bank uh, for four years as well. So it, it this disconnect um, always made me feel very discontent in my work. Mm. So it wasn't until I found customer experience as a field that I felt very alive and very aligned. But I didn't know, you know, I didn't know how to express that. I just knew I'm loving it and I'm killing it, but I know why. <laughs> so, uh, when she started digging into like, what about customer experience I like and why do I want to do this and why I want a company that does this, not something else, um, that, that surprised me. That alignment that she found between, um, all through the years, like hearing these little snippets that I want to help people and the fact that customer experience is indeed that type of field um, was a very interesting moment, you know? Mm, yeah. I um I honestly also, in terms of customer experience design, have to say that it, it, what I like about the field also is that it is cross-functional mm, in the sense right. that, like you were saying, it talks about um, – you know, creating new design or new process or new procedure or new architecture, but it also has it as a purpose or as a goal, the creation of feelings.
2: Hmm. And
1: I I think this is um, very um, interesting business almost (laughs) uh, Hmm. to create a feeling because even when we were in JetBlue, a lot of times uh, when we would start a conversation about customer experience, Uh, Very quickly, we would go with, okay, what feeling do we want to create in our customers or what state of mind are they in in that moment and what do they want to feel in that moment? And that's how we connected this to the happiness um, kind of realm. Happiness means different things in different situations. Hmm. Um, But so getting into that level of empathy and understanding and, and almost like being responsible. For um, owning these feelings, you're creating um, is actually a very uh, hefty goal and a very big responsibility uh, that that is achieved in a in a in a very complex way on the back end. But um, but getting it is the most rewarding thing um, you can experience because once you build it, then many people can experience it. Like there's a, an ultimate scale built in in customer experience that is very uh, impactful.
0: It's interesting that you're referencing psychology, but you're talking like a sociologist, actually, Yeah. at least to my ear, because there's this idea that you brought up twice now, which is, you know, as, as we would talk about it, as I would talk about, you know, the practices If it, 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 you know, there's a cognitive element to things, obviously, but at the same time, it, it's the, the emotions that we experience are achieved through the the practices that we are engaged in with others. And this is kind of like a sociology of emotions Mm -hmm. perspective. I I think in some ways, right, one of my critiques of customer experience as being, or any experience design feels being overly psychological, is that it can too easily fall into this trap of, well, different people want different things. Everyone's an individual. Therefore, we can't do anything to please anybody. So we should just do what we want (laughs) Versus, Mm. versus this thing of, no, we can create, expectations, we can create experiences, we can create moments through the things that we do. And so we need to focus on that which we are doing now and that which we want to design in the future. And that to me, at least, becomes much more of an empowering message than everything psychological, interpretive, up to people's own judgment and perspectives. Therefore, we can't really do anything about it.
1: That's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, I specifically have heard that a lot <laughs> in uh, from from some of the pessimists around me, and I always would say that there are basic things that everybody would like, that is not rocket science, um, and they're not that um that easy to build, anyways. So you can start small, and you can. Figure things out on on a on a very basic things like people would like to have an ease of payment. They don't want to, you know, keep putting many fields in a thing that already have if they have visited a web page and they, you know what I mean. There's just intuitive things that you're like, come on, you know, eighty percent of the people would probably like that you can pay with one click or if they have saved their credit cards before. So there are things that um, definitely will be making people happy. Um, but but they are still they still can be a good project of a couple of hundreds of thousands of dollars. <laughs> you can still spend money on stuff like that.
0: Right. I, one of the things I did want to ask you about, kind of related to this before we get into the too much of the JetBlue thing, which by the way I love because I love JetBlue, is working at a casino. So after you're at a Franciscan school studying, you know <laughs> the meaning of life, then you go off to a casino, which I, <laughs> I love, I love casinos. Not because I gamble a lot cause I don't, but I had, I, I, just, I I, I, had a great project teed up, uh, was before I knew what customer experience was at a casino. Because I think that in many ways you go to a casino, it is the greatest assemblage of people from across cultures, yeah. that you can find because you go to any blackjack table you go to any <laughs> kind of card table these places you don't know who you're sitting next to no. and it's it's very egalitarian and inclusive in that way that they're welcoming everybody they don't care where you're coming from and it's up to the people who are working the casino to figure out how to deliver an experience in that moment that will keep people engaged um, at the table, so I, I love the idea of casinos as sites of customer experience. Yeah, that is
1: so funny. I mean, honestly, you're like you're really digging stuff that nobody has been bringing <laughs> up through the years. I'm very impressed. Um, well, That's
0: it's it's what we do, researchers. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, we, honestly,
1: yeah. Very <laughs> okay. So, first to get the order right, um, the casino was before the uh, before the college, um, the the casino to some extent paid for college. <laughs> so,
0: the casino paid for college
1: in a weird way. Wow. Uh, That's awesome. It, it was, um, yeah. Um, so, between Ripley's Museum, believe it or not.
0: Uh, okay. My- this is getting really good. I love Ripley's yeah. <laughs> Museum. I, lo- I love Ripley's, believe it or not. Adam's too young to know what that means. <laughs> Oh, oh I goodness.
1: used to I'm love in that show. <laughs> so the Ripley's Museum on the Boardwalk and the Casino, uh, they're the ones that gave me the start from New York. Um, so I i would say, I, so the first, I, I didn't realize, again, that you're me so back, but I didn't realize that that's exactly when I fell in love with hospitality. Because, believe it or not, in, oh, no pun intended, um, in 2001, the casino industry had the most sophisticated training system in terms of getting new hires through a very rigorous, very long and thorough training for us to understand the mindset of a gambler.
0: And oh, I could how, totally believe it.
1: Yep, how no. to talk no. to them. Uh, we had um, exactly what now I, I you know, sell. <laughs> but for casinos, I actually went through twice because I had to come back a second summer and they did not believe you you remembered it, which is another impressive thing now in retrospect, because they could have saved on the money and said, oh, well, that person already went through this. Nope. I had to go sit through the same training again um, because it was so important to them that you really understand the mind of a gambler and did you act accordingly. Um, uh, we had very uh, sad trainings as well because people would also leave their children sometimes, unfortunately, uh, um, unattended because they the children weren't allowed to be on the gambling floor. Uh, but it was a really interesting um, and very rigid training also about uniforms, punctuality, um, and kind of this whole hospitality world of how do you speak to people? Um, how do you guide them to other places? Uh, And uh, how do you help them? So we also were trained um, on signals that somebody is in trouble, unfortunately, and cannot stop. Or they had this weird responsibility piece built in Hmm. um, to to also really take ownership if somebody has gone too far.
2: Wow.
0: It's not terribly surprising, I don't think, because... You know, at the same time, you don't want people. I mean, if as a customer experience, I understand there's different levels of casinos, and talk about persona development. Uh-huh. Who you're going to get at the five dollar table is going to be different than you get the five hundred yeah. table, five hundred dollar table. Very. Deep. But it's not surprising to me that they would be concerned about this stuff because they're trying to create something that has some level of sophistication, and they have to deliver on the what's in the mind of the public in terms of the public consciousness of what a casino represents. And so the idea of people leaving their kids. Um, you know uh, unattended while they're going out there and gambling or being intoxicated or you know sweating profusely if they lose their life savings not a good look (laughs) yeah yeah from a customer perspective, they
1: had a machine in the back end that really managed that very well i was very impressed
0: and i love ripley's by the way because i mean there was a tv show adam called ripley's believe it or not it was hosted by a guy named jack palance (laughs) And it was always like foggy. Believe just it is talking it, 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 and I've seen this before. Weird... You was... have seen it before. Uh, so there we go. I mean, I can only imagine who you were getting in the boardwalks of uh, <laughs> yeah. to the to the to the to the museum. That that must have been a, quite a sight.
1: It was definitely an experience. I can tell you guys. I I also haven't worked as much as these two summers in my entire life. Maybe now as an entrepreneur, I'm getting close, but not not that crazy hours that I was there because the casinos never close, as you know, so mm. uh, it was quite quite insane. But we also made money and we were a whole population of students, so there is also a lot of new experiences for a Bulgarian student here, so um, I definitely support any exchange program like that because it allowed students from all over the world um, to really um, open their minds on many levels and also understand um I don't expand. You know, like when you are outside of the states, there is this illusion of what America is because of the movies. Mm. So you right. come in. And I I don't think there are many movies that advertise how hard we work here. So for the students to come and see that, it was very um, eye opening.
0: Um, well, let me tell you about a movie called Nine to Five with Lily Tomlin and Dolly Parton and Jane Fonda. That should have been your pre. American cultural immersion experience was watching nine to five okay and it actually is actually is an interesting you know perspective of and i when I teach class on work, we actually do a whole thing on pop culture, popular culture descriptions or depictions of work, and definitely the airlines you know suffer from this this idea of what is the airline experience i don't know that the airlines are ever portrayed positively in movies for instance or on television and that definitely creates this expectation in the minds of the customers of what it's going to be like that i'm sure when you were at jet blue you had to actively actively manage what's the expectations coming in and then create something that exceeds that as they go out
1: yeah i mean in in airlines are just i think in general i don't i don't think airlines and and pop coach or anybody makes a, a a good, does a good job in explaining the complexities of the industry and how many things need to happen for you to actually take off on time. I uh, always joke with uh, closer friends that even the, the even the truck that comes to collect uh, the restroom or bring the the restroom um, liquid for your restroom freaking thing on the on the airplane. Uh, needs to come at a specific time and refuel this refuel this thing for you to take off on time. And there's so many elements on the airplane that we just take for granted are there somehow um, that all need to be coordinated in a, a seamless manner for um, for a takeoff on time. The variability. And the complexity on the back, and it's just insane. So I always say, that for me, it's actually a miracle how many airplanes get off on time, not the other way around. The chances of you being late are super high, <laughs> like really, really high. It's so weird, you know. I had a, I never engaged, uh, and now more so. But when I was in Jeju, I definitely had to be careful of what i say on facebook but like a, a friend of a friend posted a, a very you know unhappy message um about a, a plane that was uh, delayed and they explained which not every time happens but in this case they explained it was because of uh, a refueling of the food uh for the for the flight and she, she said, well, that is a stupid reason for us to be delayed. Uh, if I was the airline, um, I, I, I appreciate being asked and I would have survived without food on the plane just to get on, on time, you know. So um, I, would, I ordinarily would just say, OK, it's OK. She doesn't know what's going on. And then, but I, was, I just couldn't this time. And I said, listen. What about this plane going to another location, right? Did you think that that your flight with that aircraft is not the only flight for the aircraft? And maybe where you were landing, there is no food to be loaded. So if they didn't load it here, then there would be three more flights without food. And if your flight was two and a half hours and you can go without food, maybe the next one is international flight that needs, there will be five or seven hours that cannot fly without food. And I don't know why, but she she was a consultant. So she definitely, she checked up on that and it turned out this is exactly what happened. And she said, well, why nobody explained this to me? I, I would appreciate if people explained this to me. But at the end of the day, there needs to be some sort of a trust, don't you think? Like how much do you explain as a brand to the to your customer until they just know and trust you that there History, is a reason it's, it's why not you do It's not just some things.
2: like ignorant... Uh, you know, miss missed opportunity there. Right? That, that's actually a, that's a really wonderful example that um, suggests how insanely complex it is. And it's true. Like, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, it's it's kind of like I'm thinking about the sociologist Irving Goffman talks about this kind of idea of front stage and backstage of of ways of how we present ourselves. But this it works really interestingly with brands too. And the idea of when it comes to a general customer experience, if you're in the the front stage, quote unquote, where you're kind of waiting. Uh, for the flight and either there's no food or it's delayed or whatever it is. And you don't know why, but then realizing the backstage, it is insanely complicated, right? There is a thousand and one operations happening at any one time uh, that like really, yeah, the customer doesn't need to see all of that. And they probably wouldn't want to <laughs> anyway. Right. But um, yeah, it's funny because there's this other simple kind of trick that if you, if, you know, people get even sometimes the most basic experience, uh, explanation for why something is the way it is, then they tend to accept it for better, or for worse. Um, and th- like this is that's oh, so interesting to, to think about, too, because uh, I think we all know and accept that airlines and, and airports are insanely complex operations. Right. But it's, it's funny, like when it comes to something simple as I am late, pause to think, wait, you're right. There is three more flights for this exact airline after this. Um, and there is no food in the next airport or whatever it is. Um, I don't know, and so part of it too. Uh, to, to, I don't know. Come back to a, a point that you both kind of made earlier: is that there, there is we have the capacity to set expectations as well as to you know put operational things in order uh, and to to make all these flights happen and stuff. And, and that's such an interesting idea. Uh, something else, uh, Liliana, that you mentioned in a previous interview that that stuck out to me was when you're, when you're thinking about pure customer experience, it kind of begins with what you said was a real operational problem. And this is an interesting idea in this case because you know, loading food onto the airplane in airport A before or airport B is the operational problem. But then there is this other side that the customer doesn't see all of that. Um, I don't know. So I love love this idea of, again, like, how do we know what real operational problems even are? I guess that's a kind of a weird question, I suppose. But, um, you know, this idea and how do we find these problems? And is this like, how do we kind of put customer experience into conversation with these real operational problems? Like, does that, how do you kind of find these problems? Is this something that you go when you talk to, the employees, you talk to the customers, you kind of talk on both sides and see uh, sort of where moments of friction are? Or like, how do, how do you see what these, these operational problems are?
1: The good thing about the operational problem is that they're in the operation, which happens every day. Um, so it's not, it doesn't take that long to see a pattern. Um, and, you know, and the only... I had an article that I wrote a while back about the five whys. Uh, I used the Harvard, uh, Harvard um, article that talked about the five whys. I, and I always preach to my people when I train them, it's it's the combination between something you notice and asking five whys. Because the problem that you think in the beginning that is the operational problem probably is not the case. So um, it never you never... And that's what I love about customer experience. You never end up where you started, um, but you start with um, either a complaint that has some sort of a validity in terms of either it happens too often it come or it comes from the right customer. In other words, your target customer, so you want to make them happy or you understand that that complaint actually can drive business away because there are complaints that, you know, they're going to happen, but that's that's not going to impact your bottom line. And there are also complaints that, you know, can maybe um, change your PL in a couple of months. So the, the underlying assumption that you have some sort of voice of the customer or some sort of a collection instrument to listen to your customer is there. If I see customers that don't have that, we start there. Um, but you also can talk to the employees. And I, I think they can tell you much more than you think in terms of what is not working. Because they see the customer every day. So uh, they're very good, uh, collect, they're very good bases of knowledge. Um, The key with them is to make sure um, you ask different levels because sometimes the people at the front, sometimes things are by design. Sometimes they are by some regulations, so you cannot change them. So if you speak with employees, my uh, advice always is to really kind of cut, cut the layers a little more versus just asking one layer and getting passionate I can about helping. learn to Oh, I'm sorry. Just, that was me. Um, so, uh, it, it, it is, it is observation, but it's also the squeaky wool gets the grease, you know?
0: I was going to say, I yeah, talk about observation and you're talking our side of the street again, because I think, you know, both anthropologists and sociologists as ethnographers, that's what we do. We look, we look, we see a thing We're like, Hmm, why is that happening? And then you just kind of dive in and and through that portal, through that noticing, this whole world unveils itself like Alice through the looking glass, right? And you end up in this space of wonder that you never would have experienced if you weren't first sensitive to the opportunity to notice and ask. And that's a cultural thing that companies have to create, encouraging employees to notice, and then ask and then recognize them in you know for doing that as well
1: I mean I can give you so many examples even in my commuting world in New York I now that I'm a mom I started looking at um the station's elevators and how people with disabilities live in New York City and it's just not a pretty picture I don't need to know you know what I mean I don't need that much input to go to the MTA and say Hey guys, you know it would be very nice if if the displays in in the stations actually show a person with a wheelchair or a mom with a with a with a stroller. Uh, what is the optimal way to get out from point A to point B? Which may be a completely different calculation uh, using the subway system that if you didn't have that constraint, um, and that would s- help the the lifestyle of so many of us in in the city, um, or you know. Going to Long Island Railroad in our case, here is kind of, we use New Jersey Transit and Long Island Railroad as, as connection from New York City. Um, I bought a, a ticket on, on their digital channel, on their app, um, and it turned out I bought the off-peak, I'm sorry, the peak, but it was off-peak. So I I I bought a more expensive ticket. I went, bought in person the, the cheaper ticket. I get on the train. I'm like, hey, so... How do I get reimbursed for the ticket I bought on your app? And then she says, "Oh, I don't know. They, it's them. They, I don't know what they do." And you are like, <laughs> "Okay, well, okay, long Island. <laughs> so it's, it's it's these things hmm. to me are just unacceptable, to be frank, guys. Uh, we just need to do better. And and any company that um opens an app system or creates an app cannot just do it separately in this day and age. It's just Like, why is this still happening, you know? Or I go to the gym and the guy says, oh, do not pay on the app. I'm like, Mm. well, why do you have the app? And he's like, oh, they don't talk to us. Like two times, (laughs) they told me these are big companies. One is New York Sports Club. The other one is Long Island Railroad. These are big organizations that service many people. So why the people at the top created completely disengaged um, um, digital experience teams inside their organizations? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, that's kind of where I get fired up. Um, it's not. Unfortunately, we have a lot of work. And unfortunately, it is still too easy to find these massive problems to solve.
2: Mm. It's, it's really interesting, too. I, I'm actually just thinking about, you know, what does a gym and a transportation agency have in common <laughs> um, because ostensibly one is a, is a state owned or city owned organization. And the other one is a private company yet. A lot of sweaty people there. A lot of sweaty people <laughs> on the train, on, there. <laughs> on the train, train and also in the gym. Um, but you know, they're also, they're also in the business of, I, I think like, you know, trying to improve people's lives in, in a broad sense, right? The gym of having yeah. a, a better sit and, and transportation, getting to work and stuff. And so there, there is something weird. I mean, to come back to your original point about like finding this, this weird, uh, you know, feeling discontent between making money a little bit and then also just making the world a better place. And how do, how do you like? Should we be a nonprofit? I don't know. You know, it's funny because I think a lot of us actually struggle with this 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 nexus right here. And these certain kinds of businesses that are in the business of uh, sort of empowerment, if 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 we will, in, in making lives better, seem to suffer from this disjointedness of of whether creating a digital experience or a customer experience, and that these channels don't always talk to each other. And that's that's really. Um, I'm not gonna say it's it's specifically these kind of organizations, but uh I don't know, there is an interesting connection there that I hadn't thought about before that um, you know, it's if there's more of a focus on like let's let's improve lives in a broad sense, they may not then say let's actually turn the mirror in to ourselves. And then what is our customer experience? What is our employee experience like? Um, our our services, our digital apps and our channels and our social media, whatever, are they talking to each other? Uh and I don't know if that's because some people find customer experience a newer field and they haven't totally thought about it Uh, or, you know, even in a very simple sense too. In user experience, you know, you tend to, you tend to even have on a single team, you might have a designer and a researcher and a developer and they all do different things. And a lot of the work is actually just getting the three different kinds of brains to work together. Even though you're producing the same object, you're producing the same digital experience. Uh, but since you're each building different parts of it, even like on this very simple level, we do find this this disconnection. So I don't know. I, I, it really resonates with me to think about both the gym and a, and a transportation agency. Um, you
1: know, it, I, I one of the things that really differentiated me in JetBlue, um, and I have no idea where I learned that was that the moment I got any of these cross-functional jobs or any. Uh, there was one job specifically I remember that I got it and somebody else had it before me. And that other person was very introverted um, and just did the job where the first thing I did was think about who would benefit from what I'm doing. A, B, who could be in the conversation and help me get a better outcome and and, and see who can give me ideas or kind of expand my footprint in the brand, in the company. And then I gathered, I don't know, a meeting of 25 people. And that was kind of unheard of and i don't understand why um so many times it is just about the person in the role um it's not necessarily customer experience it is i mean it could be right but it Mm. also there is something just about being outwardly about what you do and sharing it and and kind of thinking about the dependencies that uh, maybe Mm. that's the depend i was very good at identifying the dependencies between what i do and, and other parts of the company connecting with the right people and thus elevating my own footprint hmm.
2: um,
1: and people were like oh you're very good at at and and i was like at what you know at caring and talking to people <laughs> and, you know, yeah, yes at caring
0: because so many of us do not care well i think i think actually there is an element of that in there there's a few things i would say number one people tend to focus on what's right in front of them and so this this idea of a systems orientation again adam and i both come from more of you know broader looking or broader scope professional trainings where we look broadly versus individually although we can do that too and the other thing is you know that's the not my job syndrome and the, the the you go back to communism in bulgaria and the idea of, well, you know, I'm just going to do my job. It's not just under communism, but I'm just going to do my job as it's written out as I need to and not care about anything else because why should I care? What's, what's in it for me for caring to do more? And that's where, you know, with JetBlue, and, you know, I'd like to hear about this a bit, this idea of, well, we're going to empower our people to, to notice, to ask why, to make recommendations, and, oh, by the way, we're actually going to listen to what they say because all of our workers no matter what level they're at are knowledge workers who are vested with the autonomy and the respect to make those recommendations in a way that can improve all of our overall experience.
1: Yeah, I think I think the word to to hang on here with what you were talking about is respect. I I think the the foundational for the I don't remember Specifically, the year, but the first time that whole concept that we're all in it together started in Southwest, and some of the founders of JetBlue came from from Southwest, and I think they brought that um, kind of revolutionary idea that what you do for the company doesn't define um, how important you are, and that every person is equal and, and, and needed for, for the execution of, of whatever the goal is of the brand. Um, so because the JetBlue company was set up in that way, as we grew, all the programs and the communications kept carrying that uh, respect. What is, in, what is not as, as obvious is how much work that is showing respect for your your employees is a very expensive very big robust commitment um and it's not just having a town hall every month uh we had a, a joke with the, the executive team uh we brought a um i don't know like some career coach and and she took um the calendar of the chief commercial officer uh as part of of the engagement there and looked at what percentage of his calendar he's spending with his people versus with frontline uh, people versus doing whatever, strategic work and all that stuff. And the outcome that came back was unbelievable. I have to call him now and and remind myself of the numbers, but it was ridiculous. It was like something like 60% of his time was spent with frontline. And that's something that really drained the executives because we had to travel a lot we had to uh really work extra because this work comes on top of the fact that you have to lead a company so um uh, getting something like this done in 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 endure, like uh scaling it is a very big uh conscious commitment from uh the executive team uh, that needs to um needs to be recognized and and honestly um, incentivized so in JetBlue there were goals that were what we called culture goals that uh, kind of were something that you couldn't evade you kind of had to do it
2: and was was respect one of these these culture goals in this in this case that's a very interesting idea yeah
1: yeah Yes, it was respect. Well, you know the re- the, the expression of the respect was. I'll, te- I'll give an example. For example, when I was doing um, the the redesign of the lobby, we had an internal communication uh, team, and we had to design a whole system about how we communicate the changes to the front line in order for them to buy it to buy in in the, it. So that meant that every time I did anything in the in, in any part of my program. I didn't just have to go and communicate this to my executives. I had to go out and communicate to the front line, engage them, get feedback, have that whole like conversation that was also omni-channel. Sometimes it was an email and saying like, hey, uh, here's the survey link to tell us what you think. Sometimes it was a trip. I had to go to the station, buy them lunch, talk to them about what we're about to do, ask them input about the design, that was the expression of the respect. You know what I mean. So respect was the the base. There was a lot of of, of money and programming around that word, uh, but it was definitely, um, uh, you know, like in any culture, like the words are just the base, the behaviors and the reward the reward systems are attached to the behaviors that these words imply. So there wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, oh, you have to respect people. We know that we have to respect them. Why? Because we have to do all these things. You <laughs> yeah. know what I mean?
0: No, I was going to say it also just really quick just goes into, you know, words versus action that, you know, our mission statement is that we respect our customers. Well, what do you actually do? And and the, and the doing becomes more important than the words because once you do, then others are going to do similarly because that's the culture. You can have whatever you want in your mission statement, and people do have whatever they want in their mission statement. It doesn't mean anybody's going to follow it because guess what? Most people don't know it, but they do know what their coworkers are doing.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and I always talk about this whole trickle effect and why culture starts at the top is because when when the executives did that, even because I I had the privilege to grow in JetBlue. So I entered as an analyst and I know how I developed. And it it really starts with junior people are looking up to the, to like other people that are higher level and say, Oh, they do this. So then I should do it. You know what I mean? Like you want to emulate, especially if you respect some leader, um, you want to do what they do. So very early, Pretty much my first day, I learned that we have a program that you as an analyst, no matter what job you have, you can go for the holidays in any airport and help out the operation. It was just the way we, we, we lived. So 4th of July, I was in the operation. I started July 1st, you know, and I, I didn't even know as much how to help. That was honestly a pain point because we needed to figure out how to train people to be actually helpful, um, but it was, um, and still is, is part of the programming there of something you do above and beyond of your job. If you want to grow in the company.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the funny thing is if you did go right, you would be there right next to the CMO or a director. You know what I mean? It, it, these were places where you would actually also network.
2: Hmm. So that, that's like, that's doubly important that it, it does kind of two levels of work there, which is great, uh,
1: yeah, I mean now that I'm thinking about it, right? Like <laughs>
2: yeah,
1: it would because executives would go and engage with all these things. Um, if you wanted to grow in the company, um, it, it kind of filled a dual purpose here.
2: Mm. And that's and that, uh, yeah, I love this idea because it also then shows. Both junior employees and, and also upper level employees, right? What it means to model that respect and that communication, um, and that's kind of that open door policy I, I, I've read about. But um, yeah, also like kind of the open, like mm-hmm. an open table yep. too, right? It's just like we're all here, you know. Uh,
1: I can tell you, Adam, my husband hated uh, <laughs> this open door policy. <laughs> <laughs> were well, they
0: showing up at your house? Were n- they just knocking on your door and saying, or the door was open oh, at your house? So they just walked in.
1: You have no idea how many times I would be like, "I'm on my way." And then at six o'clock, somebody Um, will walk in. I can't text because it's something you know. I can't just kind of say to the person, "Let me just text." And my husband will be like, "Are you serious? You were like leaving an hour ago." Um,
0: So you kind of need a doors ajar policy, not an open door. You don't want to (laughs) fully shut. You just want to open a little bit, maybe a crack. You know, doors. (laughs) You know, a crack open policy, just or knock first. Office hours, it's It's open, but just knock first. (laughs)
1: Uh, I was a big giver. That's for sure. I was a big
0: giver. So given, speaking of that, um, with the Petrova experience, so you left, you left JetBlue and now you're, you got the Petrova experience. What is that? What are you aiming to do besides, you know, pursuing happiness? We got that. Um, (laughs) what's like, how would you explain it to people who are interested in hearing more about it?
1: Sure. I mean, um, so I, the the way I kind of design our method um, is to start with the culture and depending on, on where the organization is, um, we do help with um, with culture and getting in and, and kind of identifying what a company wants to be in terms of customer centricity. Where are they on, on their trajectory? Um, do they have anything mapped out? Or if they don't, uh, if they do... Um, you know is what we talked with Adam about like, is are the behaviors there are they rewarded? Uh, are there these systems um, built around uh, what they aspire to be in order to make it happen? Uh, that's kind of one of the offerings we have. Um, the other uh, kind of more macro offering is the customer experience audit where we go in and um, we talk about what customer experience is happening today and where um, they can get. To be if, if they if they actually invest in and how to build that whole programming around the future experience, and what ties both of these is that you know the moment we start working with a brand, we quickly understand that there is a process and procedure that kind of connects these aspirations with what happens in the operation. Uh, so inevitably, we we do uh, some redesign of 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 processes and procedures, um, but. The bottom line is, you know, if you want to know if your customer experience is at par, if you're, if you're, you no, know, if you want to know if you're delivering on your brand promise, um, and if you want to make it, make it, deliver a better customer experience, um, we can definitely help you. And and I think Gary, what we you mentioned earlier, we know how it's done. We're not theoretical about it. Uh, we we build realistic timelines, uh, and we probably will not waste as much time learning your, your business because we've seen it, um, we've seen it around. So it will be a little uh, faster in terms of diagnostics. Uh, But also we, we are very uh, responsible in terms of the business case, because when I was in JetBlue, I had to get my own money and that's a big differentiator too. it. I I know we need to make a business proposition as much as a happiness for the customer. Um, So, uh, we will talk through through the intricacies of, of metrics and, and build a system that would prove the value of, of these investments.
0: Do you find that people, just real quick, so I running run out of time, I mean, for many yeah. companies, might you know, know what we need to do? We need to have an audit of our customer centricity. And then you give them the results and they're just like, wow, <laughs> we really didn't mean it. We just wanted to have the audit, you know, or we just wanted you to tell us what a good job we're doing or we didn't want to change everything. You know, do you?
1: Yeah, no, I hear you. That so, uh, what I have seen is, and the way I approach it, because I came from an executive kind of environment where I had to earn my wings. Um, I never overwhelmed them with everything. Um, we always start smaller, uh, touch point, or um, you know, in in if if the brand is smaller, a lot of uh, often there are challenges is, is scaling. Uh, there are a couple of articles that came out with teams being overwhelmed. Um, so we take we take a small piece and and prove the case, and then we go and we say, okay, this is the bigger uh, picture. Because uh, you're right, it can be very demoralizing if you really dump everything. But it also is not all important. I think that's really the key here. Um, you don't have to fix everything. Uh, but you need to to fix the things that um, are really big drains, even if they're more expensive. And I think that's the one non-negotiable with me uh, is um, if you need to go and fix the reservation system, we'll talk about it. You know what I mean? I'm not going to just shy away from it. And I would be better. I would probably be more passionate about getting one big chunk and fixing the core. And, and because I know that phase two, three, five would be much cheaper. And that's the battle that will unleash a lot of capabilities versus shying away from that one and just doing some over smaller things. And then you don't have the impact and then you don't have the wow effect and then you can't keep going. Then, then you hear people saying, Oh, customer experience doesn't
0: work. Mm. Right. Yeah. I I think I really like the idea of the start small and build on those small successes to get buy-in because as I, as I often will say, Uh, and I'll say it right now because I often say it, Um, (laughs) it, it's it's better to have a a simple success than a complex failure. Hmm. And a lot of people want to go for like the big fix, the big solution, and it gets bogged down in complexity and gets very demoralizing very quickly versus what's the simplest thing we can do right now to make things better. Let's start there and then we can – Build on that to get to the larger levels of things that we, we need to get done, but you can't do the big things if you can't do the small things. And so let's first do the small things. Amen. Amen. Yeah, we start, we ended up with a Franciscan prayer. Amen. So, if people want to get in touch with you, where would they go to, to, to hear more?
1: Oh my God, guys! I'm on every social media platform out there. You are. Are you on um, TikTok?
0: Do you put videos? Uh, so I
1: actually thought about it. Okay, here is the story. We're gonna end with okay. this. I thought about TikTok, and I have one of my JetBlue people that were like, "Over my dead body! You're doing TikTok? <laughs> you're not doing TikTok?" And I was like, "Why?" She was like, "You have so many already. You can't do TikTok." So I was not allowed. <laughs> okay. By my uh, well,
0: now that you have your own platform, you can go in and do musically and TikTok and MySpace oh, and, um, <laughs> and any other uh, kind of social media platform. That's available out um, yeah, there.
1: LinkedIn. LinkedIn is my uh, my favorite one and my dear most close to the the heart. And I'm working actually on a newsletter, so hopefully that's going to come out soon on oh, LinkedIn great. as well. So um, LinkedIn is probably where um, I'm, I'm most responsive. And
0: also, you will have coming soon to TikTok. Yeah. Will be L- Liliana doing Franciscan chants <laughs> on TikTok. Uh, which is probably a market for. I don't know anybody's gotten that I'm niche yet.
1: Gonna have, I'm going to have one like.
0: That's you. <laughs> that's, that's the most important like there is though. I appreciate Thanks again to Liliana Petrova, founder and CEO of the Petrova Experience, for taking us through her work at JetBlue, her career experience, which includes Ripley's Believe It or Not, which I just absolutely love and her vision for a CX future. Make sure you find out more about her consulting work at the Petrova Experience and her LinkedIn profile, as well as Twitter and all other social media platforms. And thank you for listening. We recently broke the 300 download barrier. Don't know if 300 downloads is an actual barrier, but let's consider it a barrier for right now. We are glad you are enjoying our conversations and we really enjoy bringing them to you. One of the great things about doing this is we get to talk to a lot of really interesting people about what it is that they do and then deliver this, these conversations to you as well. Remember, you can give us feedback at feedback at experiencexdesign, all one word, dot com. We love hearing from you. Subscribe to our feed as well and check out past episodes at experiencexdesign.com. You can also donate there through our glow.fm link and help support episodes like this one, as well as future episodes. The podcast has ended. Let us all go in peace and spread the gospel of customer centricity. Amen.